0: My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear From The Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 21 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. Three brothers, age 92, 94, and 96, live in a house together. One night, the 96-year-old draws a bath, puts his foot in and pauses. He yells down the stairs, was I getting in or out of the bath? The 94-year-old yells back, "Well, I don't know, I'll come up and see. He starts up the stairs and pauses. Then he yells, was I going up the stairs or coming down? The 92 year old was sitting at the kitchen table having coffee, listening to his brothers. He shakes his head and says, I sure hope I never get that forgetful. He knocks on wood for good luck. He then yells, I'll come up and help both of you as soon as I see who's at the door. It's been said that bird droppings on the shoulder is good luck. That's crap. As luck would have it, three stories to share tonight. The Tainted Isle by Dan Weatherer is a collection of paranormal horror short stories that I have the good fortune to share with you over the coming months. Let's get after it. Victorian England a contradictory time of industrial progression and superstitious doctrine. After a brush with death, Solomon White, driven by his fascination with the supernatural, tasks himself with investigating the origins of Britain's darkest myths. As he explores haunted locales, crosses paths with mythical beasts, and discovers the resting place of King Arthur, what Solomon experiences will forever blur the lines between what is fact and what is fiction. Mixing science with superstition, Solomon inadvertently paves the way for the future paranormal investigation. His legacy will be that of Britain's first paranormal investigator, discovering for himself the secrets of the Tainted Isle. And now for your indulgence, the witching tree, the man I was, and the dressmaker's mannequin found in the Tainted Isle by Dan Weatherer Prologue The Witching Tree, Elverton, March 1871 Quite how... I allowed myself to become entangled in the darkest practices of our time is a question I contemplate often. Suffice to say that when slumber eludes and I find myself far from home, I remind myself that the path I walk chooses me and it is not the other way around. There shall be time later for reflection, a time for remorse also, but this is not it. This is the story of how I became Britain's first investigator of the peculiar, later termed the paranormal by more learned men than I. So that you may fully understand the journey I undertook to become the man I am today, let me begin with the retelling of my first investigation, one which led me deep into the heart of rural Staffordshire. During earlier times, When truth and superstition made uncomfortable bedfellows, cases of suspected witchcraft were many. Any person deemed guilty of practicing witchcraft met with death. This was a sentence passed out by men who held no official office and were no more qualified than you or I to judge the merits of a criminal case. Fear held court for many years and it is a blight on our history that so many were butchered in ignorance. Records, though scarce, estimate that between one and a half and two and a half thousand women were executed in England after being tried for witchcraft. The last official executions of suspected witches occurred in 1682, with the hangings of Temperance Lloyd, Mary Trumbulls, and Susanna Edwards, or, So history states. Rumors persisted of a much later execution having occurred in a small village named Elverton. Hearsay has it that a young wretch by the name of Mabel Othen, having allegedly inflicted untold misery upon the community, was hanged from an oak tree on 17th March, 1783. That such a sentence be carried out over 100 years after the last documented execution was worthy of investigation alone yet stories persisted detailing the disappearance of individuals from the area around the anniversary date of mabel othen's execution i had been compelled to discover whether there was any truth pertaining to those rumors in a bid to end the tittle tattle once and for all young Headstrong and with an adventurous spirit, I naively assumed that I could find fame and fortune by dispelling the myth behind the witching tree. My journey south passed quickly and the haze-filled skies I had long associated with home gave way to a bright azure. Here was a quiet I had seldom imagined possible. Save for the clatter of the horse's hooves and the intermittent squeal of the carriage wheels, there was little else to hear. I noted that what few examples of wildlife I observed did not flee from the sounds of my approach, but remained still and silent, watching my carriage as it passed them by. This quiescence ought to have unnerved me, though, inexperienced as I was, I paid my surroundings little attention. In later years, I would recognize this quiet as the warning that was meant. The majority of Alverton sits above a massive valley which slices through the heart of the county. The valley is flanked on either side by a wall of close impenetrable forest. I was informed by my driver that the ravine's floor lay some several hundred feet below. I leaned out of the window as we passed over a narrow precipice, the carriage rocking violently from side to side as our wheels stumbled over the loose rock and strained to see for myself. The base of the valley was hidden from sight by a thick carpet of lush treetops. I ordered the driver to stop, and for a while, he and I sat together and admired the scenery. This was a vista like no other I had ever encountered. One grows accustomed to an ordered horizon, one lined with rooftops and tall chimneys. Here, perched on the edge of the drop and surrounded by dense woodland, I felt that for the first time in my life I was able to breathe. It was a heady mix. The combination of the scenery, the purity of the air, the steady babble of the River Churnet, and the confident shouts of the loggers at work deep within the bowels of the valley flooded my senses. I experienced there a moment of serenity that I shall never forget. My driver went on to explain that a small section of the village littered the valley floor and that further to the west, A mile into the vale lay the neighboring village of Oakmoor. My lodging for the night was a coach house by the name of Swallows Pass. The building rested on the lip of the valley and afforded a similar view to that of my earlier vantage point. Later, when shrouded in darkness, the forest cut a gray and silent shape against the mat of the night sky. Absent the day's toil, only the whisper of the trees remained. As I made my way from my room towards the area of the tavern that served as a public house, the air carried an array of voices, all of which were engaged either in excited conversation or raucous argument. I pushed open the door that separated the guest quarters from the bar, expecting the fervor to rise in volume. Instead, a hush fell over the room, and all eyes turned towards me. An atmosphere of suspicion hung between us. The revelers and I, the moment mercifully passed. The hush broke and a low murmur of chatter resumed. Perplexed and feeling more than a little uncomfortable, I ordered an ale and took a seat at the bar. The publican was a rotund fellow with dark eyes and a ragged beard. His face wore an expression of forced welcome and he muttered only minimal thanks as I paid for my drink. I took a sip and gathered my composure. I was a visitor to this place, unfamiliar, an unknown quantity. If the rumors held any semblance of truth, then it was only to be expected that the community would view my intrusion with a degree of suspicion. As I drank, I felt eyes on my back. Anxious, I shifted my attention from the crowded bar behind, back towards the barkeep. It was he who spoke first. So where you from then, eh? I replied that I was from Manchester. City boy, eh? What brings you here, then? I paused for a moment. I wondered whether it would be wise to reveal my actual intention this early in the investigation. What behind the ears as I was, I elected to lie. Outsiders don't come here for fresh air. Can't even remember the last visitor we had, can you? Though it was clear that the barkeep was addressing somebody to the rear of me, his eye remained locked with mine. Nah, I canna, came a mumbled reply from far behind. He leaned across the bar and repeated the question in a tone laced with threat. So I'll ask you again, Sonny. What brings you here then? I was about to reply in truth when a sudden chill took my bones. A chorus of gasps erupted behind me. Instinctively, I turned on my stool, expecting to see one or more of the local folks standing directly behind me, their patience at my intrusion having finally worn thin. As I turned, the fire that had been burning upon my arrival sputtered out, throwing much of the tavern into darkness. Silence fell upon the bar and a tangible feeling of dread permeated the air. All at once, the fire burst into life, only this time, the flame burnt a pale blue. As impossible as it seems, the room became colder. I began to shiver and struggled to prevent my teeth from chattering. Several in attendance stood in unison and began to back away from the fireplace. Panicked eyes first regarded the blue flames and then turned their attention my way. One of the patrons pointed towards me. It's a sign, he stammered, overturning his stool as he backed away from the fireplace. A look of terror etched on his face. The girl walks once more, cried another his features lost in shadow. Hush up, growled another. Our fear betrays us. I turned towards the barkeep. His confrontational demeanor had now been replaced by one of dread. He appeared pallid, apprehensive, and he mumbled something under his breath. His voice hushed, his tone resentful. Not a word, but a name. A name that I had read several times in my case notes. Mabel. I rose early the next morning, keen to start my investigation proper, having found myself cursed with a skeptical mind, which, in later years, I would learn to count as a blessing, I could not help but wonder whether the preceding night's events had been a jape at my expense. Indeed, it was not beyond the realms of possibility that the locals, wise to my intentions, had come up with a dastardly plan to either mock or frighten me, in the hope that I might abandon my cause and flee back home to Manchester. My morning had been spent knocking on the doors of cottages that formed the hub of Elverton. I had received no answer. Though a great many of the villagers labored in the forest, I knew the wives and children remained at home. I concluded that they must be shy of strangers and sought answers to my questions in the valley below. As I picked my way through the forest descending further into the valley, all manner of outlandish theories crossed my mind. I wondered if the blue effect of the flame had been orchestrated by the burning of a mineral I was unfamiliar with. Mother Nature holds many secrets. Perhaps such material was abundant in these parts? A simple enough practice it would have been to extinguish the fire while my back was turned, only to add the mysterious fuel and set it alight in the chaos of the darkness. It would have been an easy idea to execute though the faces of those who had witnessed the spectacle had given naught but the impression of genuine fear. Fear is a look that is difficult to falsify. The faces of the patrons had stricken fear not only in my heart, but in those of one another, too. Try as I may to rationalize said incidents. I could not satisfactorily explain away their alarm. Having reached the foot of the valley after a steady and ponderous descent, I concluded that a hoax, possible though it may have been, was unlikely. The air of palpable dread that had descended upon us had not been the result of play-acting or misdirection. The descent had passed without incidents. I was able to find a logger's path, which guided me safely through the thickest areas of the forest with ease. Voices that at first had sounded sporadic and distant, heard only due to the good fortune of the prevailing winds, now came at me from all sides. The woodland kept their owners hidden from view, but I concluded I was among a large working party that had based themselves beside the banks of the Churnet. This was a landscape as picturesque as any England I had to offer. The river gurgled through the valley base, cutting a twisting path between rock and grass. The sound of the water soothed me, and as the mid-morning sun beat down, any notion that this place harbored a dark and terrible history seemed at that moment improbable. After a time, I called out. I required the thoughts of the loggers on the rumors that dogged their village. Spending my morning enjoying the scenery would provide few answers. Almost at once, all sounds of work ceased, and a silence settled over the forest, one which tugged me hard from my fancy and left me feeling more than a little unnerved. Faces began to appear among the trees. Unfriendly faces. Distrustful faces. Angry faces. Not one of them uttered a word. They merely stood half-hidden in the forest and stared. I spoke first and introduced myself. Don't matter what your name is interrupted one of the faces. Nothing of interest for the likes of you, added another. A mumble of agreement erupted from the tree line. I asked them if they were able to spare a moment to answer a few questions I had regarding the stories that tarnished the reputation of the area. Tall tales they are shouted a voice from behind me. I turned to see who had answered only to be met with another set of half hidden dirtied faces. All remained within the limits of the trees. All eyed me with suspicion. Unnerved, I continued to press. I explained that people from the surrounding area disappeared around this time of year. Silence. I ventured the theory that Elverton and Oakmoor might have an idea as to why that might be. Why'd that be then? Answered another. I turned to again. It was impossible to identify who had responded, but I felt I should at least make an attempt to engage whoever might be speaking by facing in what I judged to be his direction. It irked me that none of the loggers would talk to me in the open. I wondered if they were afraid to break ranks, to single themselves out in front of the others as the one who had said too much. I continued with my theory that the disappearances related to the death of a young woman and explained that she was thought to have been executed for witchcraft in the area some years before. Again, nothing but silence. I dared her name. Silence again, but of a different sort. I felt a shift in the atmosphere. How best to describe it? Apprehensive, perhaps? And tinged with fear? Just a story that nothing more. We don't hang folk here. My heart thumped hard and my stomach lurched. I had not mentioned anything of hanging. Whether brave or foolhardy, the words were already said. They lingered, loud and distinct in the silence that followed. Another shift in the atmosphere now, one loaded with accusation and betrayal. I heard the gentle snapping of branches erupt and fade into the distance. The faces were gone. I stood and wondered what I was to make of this rebuff. Was it to be interpreted as a sign of collective guilt? Perhaps, or maybe they had simply grown weary of my attempts to extract an admittance from them. Either way, I stood alone on the riverbank, unsure as to my next step. The villagers and the loggers were reluctant to speak with me. That much was clear, and I had yet to uncover any factual evidence regarding the alleged disappearance. My investigation looked to have met an end. A voice, one I had not heard during my exchange with the loggers, spoke from behind me. You want to know about the girl? Startled. I turned to see a thin elderly gentleman stood before me, his ragged clothes hung from his filthy slender frame and heavy shadows lined his bloodshot eyes. I answered that I did. The man nodded and licked his lips. I'll tell you what they told me as a boy, but it'll cost you a decent meal. I reached into my pocket and offered the man a handful of coin. Aside from the barkeep, myself, and the disheveled old man from the riverbed, the tavern was empty. Since leaving the valley, my dinner guest had said little of note, instead choosing to discuss the possible dishes upon which he may dine. The scowling barkeep placed a bowl before the old man and retreated into the kitchen. My companion began to hurriedly scoop spoonfuls of stew into his mouth. "'Tis the best to around there for my he mumbled between mouthfuls. Cecil may be the mean sort, but he can't have cook.'" He introduced himself as Thomas and explained that he had worked the forests as a logger for the last 30 years. Earl's been good to us folk, kept us in work when those further north had not,' he explained. "'Always trees to be fell, Always work for those like me, Thomas set his empty dish aside and used the tattered remains of his sleeve to wipe his mouth. Good meal, that, but a debt is a debt. You want to know about a girl, right? I straightened in my seat. Having spent the entirety of my time in his company doubting whether he would even approach the subject again, my interest was now piqued. As he smiled at me, I could see shredded strips of meat hanging between his broken yellow teeth. What little appetite I had quickly faltered. "'You talk all fancy like me won't do yer no good. Nowadays around here, I'll tell you what I know, though you'll call me a liar so you will.' I assured Thomas that I would do no such thing, eager as I was to hear his testimony. His eyes narrowed and he searched my face for mocking. Finding none, he continued, Mabel, she lived in this village nearly 100 years ago. Quite the beauty by all accounts. Some say that was what got her in trouble in diverse place. It was said she was a temptress of men. At least that was one of her curses, so they said. The women folk at least. Truth be told, she was blamed for every piece of ill luck that fell upon this village. Winters are harsh here, even now. Back then, crops failed, food became scarce, and Mabel, with her bewitching looks and devil tongue, she made no friends in it all. They came to see her as a witch. I see you raise your eyebrow at that, but it was all too common a thing back then. I know I read. I nodded and urged him to continue. Then there was a missing child. happened right in the middle of the worst times for crops. Someone said that Mabel were to blame for the child turning up dead in the river. He paused, letting the revelation hang in the air. I asked whether he believed Mabel was to blame. Story goes as she never said either way, so I don't know. I, she stood trial and all, but never spoke in her defense. I asked whether there was any truth to stories of her execution. I, carried out below, at the old oak. I can show you? My resolve strengthened at his willingness to cooperate. I asked if he would take me to the place of her death. I I can, if you have the stomach for it. I'll warn you now, though this ain't like any oak you ever saw in your city, boy." Fascinated and confounded, I questioned him further. "'Tis the oldest tree in the valley, probably the land, so far as round here anyways. She holds the earth between strong fingers, thick as you and me. Alas. This is not all. Captivated by the description of the oak and confident that it was the witching tree he described, I leaned closer. When they hung her, it didn't go to plan. The branch she dangled on snapped. She fell to earth, smashed her legs up good. It was then she cursed us. Said we'd pay for our ignorance or something like that. Unless... The day of her suffering were marked with death. For a moment, neither of us uttered a sound as I allowed his words to settle into my thoughts. But the oak, oh, oh, whoa, tis like no other. If a tree could display torment, then this would be it. Like something out of the dark forest which Dante traversed as he descended to hell, it is. Dump. It was the voice of the publican, measured and even. Oh, I'll take yer, Thomas continued, his eyes wild with danger. I'll take yer now, but I know she'll be near. She always is. Tom, barked the barkeep again. Thomas motioned me to lean in closer. Tis not safe to talk here, he whispered. Come see me shortly. My cottage is at the top of the road. Second on the right. I'll tell you more there. He stood quickly, knocking the table as he did so, nodded to the publican, and hurried out of the tavern. I allowed his words to settle while I finished my meal under the watchful glare of the barkeep. It was true that Thomas was a curious fellow. One might even think him eccentric. But a liar I believed him not to be. The story had struck a chord within me. The conviction etched upon his face spoke louder than any words he had used to tell his tale. Thomas believed the stories he had told me. Of that I was certain. I ate and I wondered what could be so unique about the oak of which he spoke. I wondered if they did hang Mabel Othan all those years ago. I wondered about the curse and its connection to the reported disappearances. I'd pay no heed to the talk of that one said the publican, interrupting my thoughts. A bit wrong in the head, if you know what I mean. My own head full of questions, I paid the landlord, bid him farewell, and made my way towards Thomas's cottage. It was approaching dusk by the time I left the tavern, yet nary a soul stirred in the village. I located the cottage, which Thomas had claimed as his home, and was about to announce my arrival with a firm knock when I realized the door was slightly ajar. Tentative, I pushed it open and took a step inside. The cottage's sparse interior appeared to be in disarray. Crude wooden furniture lay overturned and broken, half covered by faded, hole speckled blankets. It was dark inside and my eyes took a moment to adjust to the gloom. All was deathly still. I called out, my voice faltering, betraying my aura of calm. There was no response. I picked my way through the debris, mindful that I did not cause further damage. It was evident that Thomas was a man with few possessions. I wished not to add to his hardship. Towards the back of the room was a small doorway, absent a door. The ceiling was low here, and I ducked through the opening into what appeared to be Thomas' sleeping quarters. I felt my stomach lurch as my eyes fell upon him. He lay facing upwards across his bed. His eyes stared unblinking towards the ceiling. His mouth hung open, and his tongue lolled to one side. His throat was cut from ear to ear. The thin mattress beneath him was sodden with blood. I retreated from the scene, my mind a whirl. Nausea took hold of me, and I staggered towards the open doorway, desperate for air. I had not set eyes upon the dead before this day, and the shock of such a sight left me feeling dizzy and sick. In my haste, I did not see them approach me from the shadows, though they must have come at me from either side. I remembered that I was struck about the head. Light flashed somewhere behind my eyes. It was a curious experience, one devoid of sound or feeling. What followed was infinite black. The cold slap of water on the flesh of my face roused me from unconsciousness. As my senses untangled themselves, I realized my precarious predicament. It was night, and I was in the forest. Rough hands beneath my armpits supported my weight, though I was now able to do so myself. I was atop a long flight of worn stone steps, Gathered far below was a sizable crowd. I deduced that the majority of the village were in attendance, and judging by the size of some, the children too, though I could not say who was there, for all gathered wore crude sack masks. Some carried torches. The flicker of the flames threw macabre shadows which danced across the stitched faces, reminding me of the jack o' lanterns which illuminate All Hallows' Eve. The itch and pinch which constricted my throat meant it was likely I was wearing a noose. I managed to turn my head slightly to the left, where I saw four hooded men holding the other ends of the rope, which I assumed was thrown over an unseen branch high above me. The noose tightened at their every movement, no matter how subtle. I admit now that panic spread through me, and I began to struggle against the grip of my captors. The crowd, amused by my fear, started to bay and jeer until one among them commanded silence. A tall figure emerged from within their throng and began to take measured strides towards me. Though the figure wore a sackcloth mask, I could feel his eyes upon me. There followed nothing but the sound of my panicked breathing and the slow, deliberate footsteps upon stone. With barely a foot between us, the figure in the sack mask spoke. You come here, asking questions, judging us, our way of life, which you know nothing about. It was expressed as an accusation rather than a question. I was not sure whether an answer was required, so I opted to remain silent. Thoughts of escape ran through my mind, but I had no plan as to how I might accomplish such a feat. I was caught in a hopeless situation, miles from home, miles from help. At that moment, I believed this was to be my end. You say nothing, continued the masked figure, a note of impatience in his tone. Well spoken, I assumed he was either not from the area or of a higher social standing. These are dark times for us, and measures are in place to assure that we see the light again. The crowd remained silent and still, poised for the inevitable, practiced in their weight. You fail to grasp that which is your fate, said the masked figure leaning close to me. I could smell the wine on his breath, rich and fruity. He turned to face the crowd below, throwing his arms into the air. The day has come. She shall have her sacrifice. We shall prevail for another year. For this, we give thanks. The crowd murmured in response and the forest fell silent again. The masked figure turned towards me and whispered, This is our gift." At that moment, the four men holding the rope pulled in unison and I felt an intense pressure around my throat. My feet were free of the ground. Instinctively, I started to kick and struggle. This intensified the ferocity of the pressure around my throat. As they pulled, My body jerked and the rope gripped tighter. The crowd roared, barely audible now, above the thunderous rush of blood which flooded my ears. I hung, pathetic and helpless, swinging in a wide arc due to the momentum generated by my futile struggles. I knew that death was imminent. At first, I thought that my eyes deceived me, starved of oxygen, the mind can conjure all manner of illusions, and I'll wager that it is many a man whose last glimpse of life is one of hope. Before me, from left to right, the flames of the torches carried by the crowd flickered from orange to blue. Again, I cannot be sure of the events that followed, for consciousness came and left in rapid, unpredictable waves, but whatever transpired was enough to save my life. The crowd began to panic. Torches were dropped, and the mob, suddenly fearful, dispersed into the depths of the forest. The masked man who had ordered my execution remained, shouting orders, trying to remain calm. With one last effort, and perhaps my dying breath, I looked to the left and watched through blurred eyes as the men who had oisted me from my feet let go of the rope and fled into the darkness. I crashed to the ground, numb and barely alive. Though I broke my arm in several places, I felt no pain at the time. My last memories of that night are of lying in the dirt atop those stone steps. The masked figure was somewhere nearby, shouting frantically into the darkness. His commands went unheeded. I do recall observing a figure approach the masked man from behind, though one cannot wholly rely on the accuracy of memories formed in a state near death. A young woman with black hair almost to her waist emerged from between the scattered blue flames. She wore a tattered cream dress that seemed to shine with a faint blue aura. She placed her hand on the back of the masked figure who stood screaming commands, oblivious to her presence. Upon receiving her touch, he fell to the ground. Quiet returned to the woods and I lay back, weak and helpless, no longer caring as to my fate. From the mud. I saw that the branches above me were lashed with heavy chains, and though I attempted to fathom why, a now familiar darkness swallowed me once more. THE MAN I WAS My visit to the Witching Tree afforded me an education outside what one might ordinarily expect when visiting a quaint English village. I did not return to that place but I did inform the constabulary of the murder of Thomas. However, I made no mention of the attempt on my own life. I wished to draw no attention to myself. I had no idea how far the reach of the village might extend. A mistake, perhaps? I ponder upon my decision often. I learned later that arrests were made and the kidnappings ceased, though, This occurred in 1873, two years after my visit. Could I have halted their malicious practice sooner if I had mentioned my brush with death? It is entirely possible that I could, though fear of reprisals, fear of being ridiculed and mocked, my character being marked as questionable before I had even begun to establish myself as an investigator of peculiar tales. All conspired against me I doubted myself I doubted my memories but most of all I questioned my understanding of what had occurred in Elverton I was weak there already an admission that has taken me by surprise I am sure there will be more to follow writing this I feel a burden lifted yes I was weak I was afraid to admit that I had attempted to solve a case involving kidnapping, witchcraft, and murder single-handedly. I was scared to admit that I had failed at my first attempt at an investigation. My fear of failure would need to be overcome. It would trouble me often, but that was neither the time nor the place to confront it. So I buried the memories of the witching tree, intending to face my concerns later in life, when I felt better equipped when I felt better able to understand. So often do we tell ourselves later, finding comfort in our refusal to face our fears. Said comfort is fleeting for those fears that are buried are only ever temporarily out of mind. I pressed on with my work as you shall read with a newfound vigor born of my failings regarding the witching tree. I reassured myself time and again that the work I undertook meant that I could make a difference to the lives of the others. That I could atone for my cowardice. It was a mistake not to speak out and tell the whole story. I know that now. Admit that now. The simple truth is that I approached the community of Elverton with the aim of unearthing the truth of their crimes before I was mentally prepared to do so. There were forces at work that I could not hope to comprehend. Not at such a young age. Not when I understood so little of the ways of the world. There is no excuse for cowardice. Though the foul practice that occurred in that community was halted, I could have halted it sooner. At least one life was lost that I might have been able to save. After a month of restful mental rehabilitation, determined to make amends, I turned my attention towards a fresh investigation, one not concerned with death or witchcraft, one that I convinced myself I would be able to carry out successfully. Forgive my fervor, often I am caught in a trail of thoughts and find myself becoming quite carried away. Let us start at the beginning returning to a time before I ventured into that cursed valley, to a time when I still believe that the answers to the mysteries of life, though well hidden, were waiting to be uncovered, waiting to be understood. Looking in the mirror of late, I scarcely recognize the withered face that stares back at me. It is June 1914, and global tensions run high. Perhaps impending war is the catalyst to these memoirs, or perhaps it is simply the march of time and the recognition of my declining health which have pressed me into documenting my life's work. My name, should it matter, is Solomon Whites. I was born into a family of wealth and standing, one of Manchester's most prominent. For all intents and purposes, it seemed that my destiny was set and I would follow in my father's footsteps in the textile business. Thus, I was educated on the nuances of the industry from an early age. It was often joked that I had cotton in my blood, though this reduced me to tears countless times as a young child. I feared that my body would cease to function at any moment, my veins clogged with an abundance of thread. Such is the imagination of the young Perhaps it was this initial fear that shaped my dislike for the mills. My father was a good man, wise and staunch. He employed many from the city and was revered among the poor as kind and sincere. The truth, as ever, was not always so pleasant. The adage, you must be cruel to be kind, was never so true as it was in the factories. Father worked his employees hard. Long hours of meager pay meant that production maintained a steady pace and father was able to compete with nearby mills while still turning a profit. Alas, with the invention of the flying shuttle, fewer workers were needed and he found himself tasked with returning a great many of them to the same streets he had previously plucked them from. This was a difficult period for the family business and in a matter of weeks, our name had gone from revered to loathed. I decided soon after that I would not be following in my father's footsteps after all. My mother was a homely, quiet woman. Having never wanted for anything, she became withdrawn from the world and hardly ever left the house. I remember a few conversations with her, as more often than not, her words were trite or cutting. Her bitterness, I later learned, was born of long years of solitude. She was a lonely woman, who at one time had hoped to travel the land and immerse herself in the history of this great isle. When I told her of my intended path, I expected a harsh scolding. I believed I would be seen as dishonoring the family name by not continuing in my father's business. Instead, she smiled at me, took me by the hand, and said nothing. A solitary tear landed upon her skirts, yet it was me from whom it fell. A quick aside is in order regarding the origins of my passion for history. I was schooled at the University of London, and though my studies centered upon the topic of business, as my father intended, I quickly fell into a friendship with the lecturer of history Dr. Jeffrey Osborne. Dr. Osborne was a colorful character of staunch belief and tempestuous nature. He taught me that history was not the mere listing of historical events but the study of the politics and social climate which befell the areas of said events, before, during, and after. History is as much a study of people and attitudes as it is names and dates. Long were the discussions we held, sometimes until the small hours of the night, and fascinating were their outcomes. It was here that my interest in folklore began. Folklore, like history, is passed from generation to generation, is spoken of over ale and meat, is recounted from parent to child. Like history, its stories contain warnings or advice that are better heeded than ignored. Like history, there is always a substantial truth buried at its heart, no matter how colorful or outlandish the tale. For example, Arthur Pendragon, better known as King Arthur, features prominently in English folklore, though there are historical truths contained within many of the stories pertaining to his exploits. Here then, folklore and history are intrinsically linked, and the separation of fact from fiction becomes almost impossible. Almost. In the beginning, I did not believe any of the tales I set about investigating, at least not at first. Some might argue that I have wasted away the days of my life i shall claim that i have not the purpose of these recollections is to explain my journey if not to your interest or understanding then perhaps for my own perhaps documenting my experiences will enable me to pinpoint exactly which decisions shaped which parts of my character perhaps reflection of this magnitude is a first for me indeed many of the stories I am about to relate, I have spoken of only to a trusted few. I can say with a great degree of certainty that once I had settled on my chosen path, the world I imagined as a young man soon ceased to exist, and in its place, I found one of darkness and menace, the likes of which only the cursed few are privy to. Do I regret the choices I made? Perhaps some though I will wager that they will not be the choices you might expect. Regret is a vital part of life, a necessary process. It allows us to quantify our standing, enables us to reflect, and if we so desire, to improve. You, dear reader, carry regret. Of that I have no doubt. It is only the ignorant who are truly free of it. Permit me to wander from topic for a moment, as I am caught in the grip of a powerful memory from my childhood that I feel is only fitting to share. Forgive me, memories clamor for my attention in no particular order, and I feel that if I do not share them right away, they may fade and not resurface for quite a time. I would have been eight, and though I am walking along a narrow lane, I am at a loss as to where this memory may have taken place. I am alone, save for the family dog Horatio. The recollection of that name brings a smile to my face, for I had heard no other name so regal sounding as that as a boy. He was an obedient dog, a spaniel, pure of breed. It was assumed that he passed away one winter, for he ventured into the forest behind our home one morning and was not to return. I remember feeling distinctly heartbroken upon his loss. That was the first time I experienced grief, though it certainly would not be the last. I digress. Back to the lane. It is noon. Horatio is ahead of me and has veered sharply to the right. I jog in a half-hearted attempt to catch up. I hear him bark and see him run beyond the hedgerow. I panic feeling suddenly anxious at being so far from my dog and quicken my pace. The fog is thick. It suffocates me, forcing its way into my lungs, prompting me to cough and wheeze. It presses upon my skin with its cold, wet touch. I reach the stile where Horatio entered the field, and I climb over it, cursing the dog. There is nothing before me but a wall of gray. Visibility is but a few feet in either direction. I step forwards and the stile behind me disappears into the murk. Horatio's barks come quicker now, and to my ears he sounds under stress. I push forth into the gloom using naught but my ears for guidance. There is a squeal of pain far ahead of me as Horatio begins to yelp and whine. I know that he is hurt. I run. I run. I run until my lungs burn. I run until my ears sting and my eyes pour. Yet, I am no nearer to my beloved dog. His cries seem distant and broken. I realize that I have no idea in which direction my injured dog lies. I concede that I am lost. The fog surrounds me. It invades me. Becomes part of me. I feel the chill of its touch coursing through my veins. In my mind's eye, my blood has turned from red to blue. My head screams in pain. My heart thunders in my chest. Sight and sound soften. My senses are numbed, rendered useless by the prevailing gloom. I could lie down and sleep now were it not for the cold. The urge to do so is almost overpowering, but I resist. To me, this feels like the very fringe of death. A strained whine from somewhere far away. Overcome with panic, I whirl and spin in a vain attempt to locate the direction of Horatio's cry. It is then that I see her, far to my left, a shadow, short and slender. I see her hair, which is long, almost to her waist. She stands motionless a beacon of life in this field of limbo. She is wearing white. It is a plain dress. I feel no threat and move towards her. With each step I take, the figure moves away. I hasten my pace, and she does likewise. Regardless of my speed, I close no distance. Meanwhile, Horatio's cries are becoming louder and more distinct. The figure is leading me towards my injured pet of this I am sure, and I break into a sprint. Horatio lies before me, his back leg twisted and broken. Pain and fear dull his eyes. I lift him into my arms, elated to have found my dog. Then, unsure as to my next action. I look around, hoping to source a way out of this place. Again, I catch the outline of a figure, short and slender, dressed in white, barely visible through the gloom. I walk towards her, cradling my dog. The shape of the girl disappears to be replaced by that of the style. Horatio's leg mended in time, and my youthful mind chose not to dwell upon the mysterious figure in the fog shrouded field. At least not until just now. Though I can never be sure, perhaps this was my first encounter with a specter. I can say that I felt no fear in the presence of said individual, But her manner and her actions were certainly out of the ordinary. For instance, why did she not call me at any point? Why did she not aid me further and help with the carrying of my dog? Then it must be asked where on earth she vanished. Though my eyes were young, I recall clearly that she melted away, only to be replaced with the outline of my means of escape. Perhaps she was a deceased relative? or a fellow lover of animals or a fellow lover of animals who is not content to sit by and watch my feeble attempt at rescue? Many times I wondered whether I had slipped into an alternate plane of existence, so disconnected from the rest of the world felt I. Reality lay but several hundred yards from me, yet I could sense little in the way of nearby substance while lost in the fog that day. Though I knew it not then, though I knew it not then, this was to be the beginning of many journeys into the peculiar journeys that are recorded here, not only for future reference but for means of personal analysis. I hope to find the process of documenting my memoirs therapeutic. I have demons to exorcise and fears to face that I have kept hidden away in the darkest recesses of my mind for far too long. Many times, I have doubted my sanity, as have others, and I am certain you will, too. What I commit to the following pages is the truth, or at the very least, it is my truth. The truth experienced by me, felt by me, feared by me. The Dressmaker's Mannequin Manchester may 1871 having decided that i would pursue my interest in folklore and tales of the curious i opted to investigate a claim originating close to the family home perusing the manchester standard one morning i came across an article discussing the unusual behavior of a dressmaker's mannequin the shop located in eccles had recently acquired a new model which had been shipped in from Peru. The owner of the mannequin, Lady Dunmore, stated that she had obtained the dummy to add a sense of vigor to her tired window displays. What followed was a series of unexpected events that eventually led her to summon the local priest. The mannequin, it was claimed, came to life at night. Eccles was but a short walk from my residence, so one summer morning I set off to visit the shop for myself, keen to speak with Lady Dunmore and with the intention of offering my services. I wagered that this could not be as harrowing as an investigation as my last at the witching tree, and felt that this would be the ideal case in which to reacquaint myself with the world of the Peculiar. Elegance Dressmaking Services occupied the last building of a long line of trade premises. Lady Dunmore informed me that it was quite the rarity to find women involved in matters of industry and that she had battled resistance from the moment she had opened her shop. The tiny premises, located far from the busy high street, afforded only a sliver of space. This was the only premises the landlord was willing to let to a female, and Lady Dunmore, ever the resourceful type, made do the best she could. Against all odds, custom was high amongst ladies of leisure, who, once hearing of Lady Dunmore's endeavors, seemed only too eager to visit her premises and purchase her wares. Though crooked and crumbling on the outside, inside the shop was immaculate and well-presented, There was a large selection of dresses and other attire hanging on racks to the left side of the store, with fitting rooms to the rear. A large ornate mirror and a clear area of floor occupied the space to the right. The mannequin took pride of place in the shop's only window. On my visit, it was attired in a trim floral patterned silk piece, which Lady Dunmore informed me was inspired by the styles of the Japanese. She explained how her increasing boredom had led her to learn the art of dressmaking, her talent for which had carried her into the beginnings of a business. She remarked that she had met fierce competition from her male counterparts and had at first believed that a hoax was in effect with regard to the actions of the mannequin, the desired outcome being that she ceased trading out of fright never the sort to wilt in the face of adversity she had turned the situation to her favor by electing to inform the local newspaper visitors to her shop increased as did her trade she argued that if she were the subject of a hoax all activity would have ceased when the perpetrators saw their efforts had the opposite effect to their intentions suffice to say the mannequin continued her twilight movements Having closed the shop early so that I might study the mannequin, Lady Dunmore proceeded to outline the events that had blighted her shop since the arrival of the model. The figure had arrived several weeks earlier on a trade ship named the Elsa May that had traveled from South America carrying an assortment of cargo. Lady Dunmore had been in the city of Liverpool the day the ship had come in and had happened to notice the mannequin sitting amongst an assortment of goods on the side of the dock. She explained to me how she was immediately taken by the appearance of the model, citing that it appeared most lifelike, especially in the eyes. A deal was struck with the ship's captain, and the mannequin returned to the shop with Lady Dunmore. Having spent several minutes examining the model, I could certainly see why she was so struck with its appearance. Mannequins tend to be composed of wicker and to resemble only a very crude human form. This particular model resembled a young woman. She would have been no older than 20 and was strikingly detailed. One might even have called her beautiful. She seemed to be constructed entirely of unidentifiable resin, which gave her skin a yellow tint. Further, the mannequin had hair that felt human to the touch. Similarly, it had both finger and toenails. Lady Dunmore insisted that her mouth contained a full set of teeth. I asked her how she knew this to be the case when the mouth of the mannequin was sealed shut. She explained that depending on the mannequin's movements in the night, this was not always the case. After obtaining permission, I examined the figure of the mannequin in closer detail. I must admit that I felt at odds with myself removing items of clothing to peek at the body contained within when the subject appeared so lifelike. My mind seemed to delight in my unease and, at one point, conjured up the illusion of a playful giggle escaping the closed mouth of the mannequin. I explained to Lady Dunmore that movement would be quite impossible as I could find no hint of a seam or joint which would allow a change of posture. I offered the theory that perhaps she had imagined a slight change of stance or that any impression of movement might possibly be caused by an optical illusion. I argued that dressing the mannequin in various outfits, all of which would sit differently on her form, perhaps catching the light at peculiar angles, might give the impression of a change of pose. She merely smiled and offered that I spend the night in the store and see for myself. Feeling nothing to fear, I accepted her challenge. The shop held little in the way of a hostile atmosphere. It was pleasantly warm and extremely well furnished. Having vowed to Lady Dunmore that I would approach the forthcoming evening from a scientific angle, I made a quick visit to the factory stores to procure a quantity of powder most oft used to help lubricate some of the larger machines. Again, after seeking permission, I proceeded to scatter the powder onto the floor at the base of the mannequin. Beginning at her feet, I circled the model, moving a short distance further from her with each revolution. I explained to Lady Dunmore that this would help rule out physical manipulation of the model, in that should there appear footprints or scuffs in the powder and the mannequin have changed position, then we could be sure that somebody had approached her during the night. Before Lady Dunmore's departure, I wrote a brief description of the mannequin's clothes and posture, which both Lady Dunmore and I verified to be true before signing. The report read thus. At the hour of closing on 5th may the mannequin at the source of the alleged activity is wearing a silk floral dress with a turquoise base she looks out upon the street to the left her left arm is folded across her midriff and her right hand rests upon her right thigh this i deem to be an accurate and appropriate description having thanked lady dunmore for her time and hospitable offer i bid her good evening and settled myself for what I assumed ought to be a restful night. I dreamt of her. The mannequin, I mean. I saw her imbued with life. We were together in a crowded market. It was hot here, and the skies were blue. The people here were dark-haired and olive-skinned. In the distance, I could hear jovial music, and I could taste salt on my lips. The soft cry of a gull floated on the warm breeze, This was not Manchester, nor any other place I had visited, yet it appeared to me so vividly. Whatever this place was, at that moment I numbered among its people. The mannequin girl led me by the hand through the clamor of the marketplace. I had to run to keep up with her as she skipped and darted through the crowds. I'd ask her name and she would look at me and laugh, urging me to follow. We entered a large sand-colored building where many men lay about smoking from tall silver ornaments, played games with wooden chips, or argued loudly in a tongue foreign to my ear. Still, she urged me forwards, almost wrenching my arm from its socket. through many rooms and past innumerable confused spectators. Finally, exhausted, we emerged into a great hall. The dance floor was filled with couples arm in arm, moving to a piece of music that was beautiful to my ear, but one I could not name. The girl and I were stood in the center of the floor when the music suddenly stopped. Each of the couples ceased their dance and turned their attention to us. An expectant silence followed, and I looked to the mysterious girl for a hint as to what I should do. Her hand reached toward me, and I accepted it in mine. She smiled at me, and my soul felt light and giddy. The band began to strike the first note of the next dance, and I awoke with a start. The shop unnaturally cold and my breath twisted and contorted before me. The weak light of the gaslight, situated on the street before the window front, cast tall shadows across the back wall. The mannequin stood the largest of all, and with the flicker of the light, it seemed to jutter and dance in a succession of quick, angular movements. I stood, shaking the dregs of slumber from my head. The cold gnawed at my fingers, and I reached for a thick fur coat I had seen hanging on one of the rails towards the back of the store. With no regard to my vanity, I threw the coat over my shoulders in a bid to drive the chill from my veins. As of yet, I had not dared to look upon the mannequin. The last traces of heightened emotion that I had felt while I dreamt remained, and though they were feelings of a free and playful nature, I knew that here, in the waking world, they were grossly misplaced. I sat huddled in a corner, awake and rational. I would need to cast eyes upon the mannequin sooner or later, or how could I face Lady Dunmore come the morning? I had expected to find nothing untoward. I had expected to report to her no trace of movement, yet I shall admit here in these notes in my naive day, I had overlooked the possibility that there may have been forces at work within the mannequin that I could not hope to understand. I braved to look towards the mannequin. My heart, which had those past few moments thundered in my chest, missed a beat. Giddy and nauseous, I saw her. She had turned to face me, her arm outstretched towards me, asking me to dance with her, much as she had appeared in my dream. The powder around her base was undisturbed. I spent the remaining hours of the night awake. The mannequin had indeed changed position in a way most significant to me. I concluded that as I was present in the shop with the intention to investigate, whatever it was that had attached itself to the model had used this opportunity to try to convey a message to me. The next morning, I recounted the night's events to Lady Dunmore, who having listened to my nervous chatter, smiled and assured me that she believed every word. When asked as to what I felt was at work here, I admitted I was at a loss. This being only my second investigation, much of what I experienced was new to me. I had read little on the subject of spirits and their means of communication, for that was what I believed to be residing within the mannequin. But I did assure her, that whatever the cause of the activity, she need not show concern. I explained the sense of happiness and freedom I had experienced during my dream. I also admitted my fright at seeing the change in posture, but I reassured her that I didn't believe there was any malice in the figure's actions. Whoever this girl had been in life, she had enjoyed dancing, and though she may well have resided within the constraints of the mannequin, she reveled in the garments and the attention that Lady Dunmore afforded her Lady Dunmore seemed content with my explanation and asked that any follow-up reports that were to be written in regard to my findings be forwarded to the local newspaper. I agreed to her wishes. The mannequin remained in the shop window for many years until a fire gutted the premises in 1896. The mannequin was the only item to remain intact, untouched by flame. I do not know what became of her once she was removed from the site, though the mannequin girl does occasionally visit my dreams, her hand reaching towards mine, beckoning me to join the dance. Hope you enjoyed tonight's tales, The Tainted Isle, featuring The Witching Tree, The Man I Was, and The Dressmaker's Mannequin by Dan Weatherer. Award-winning author Dan Weatherer was first published by Haunted Magazine in Spring 2013. Aside from the publication of numerous short stories with a multitude of presses, His next major project was a solo collection of short stories titled The Soul That Screamed, winner of the Predators and Editors Reader's Poll Best Anthology 2013. An accomplished playwright, Dan was the winner of the 2017 Soundwork UK Play Competition, a finalist in the Blackshaw Showcase Award 2016, and a two-time finalist of the Congleton Players One Act Festival 2016. Dan has had several of his plays appear at festivals and fringe events. The Dead Stage, a book detailing Dan's experiences as a novice playwright was published courtesy of Crystal Lake Publishing in October, 2018. In 2019, Dan was nominated for a local heroes award, The Sentinel, for his continued promotion of literacy and mental health issues in the city of Stoke-on-Trent. In 2020, Dan became a contributor for Creepypasta Stories and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. 2020 also saw the release of his novella, Cheslin Meyer, Domain Publishing. Presently, Dan contributes to the YouTube channel Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and his stage plays continue to be sold and performed worldwide. Check out Dan's website at www.danweatherer.co.uk That's d-a-n-w-e-a-t-h-e-r-e-r dot c-o dot u-k And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave chilling tales for Dark Nights, a five-star review, and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. And subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear From The Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at... Fear from the Heartland.